This episode is brought to you by Connect Rocket. Nobody stands up your EOC faster. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Heather. And I'm Grayson. And this episode is entitled, Rebuild or Retreat, The Road to Recovery. In this special student-led Emergency Preparedness Week episode, we'll be exploring the topic of recovery. How are recovery decisions made? What factors influence those decisions to either rebuild what was there before or do something different? How do you actually go about building back better? To this end, we will be speaking with two recovery experts, Greg Selecki and Sophie Gilbo, as well as reviewing a few different Canadian case studies, including the flooding in Merritt and the fires in Lytton, BC. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. Well, happy Emergency Preparedness Week 2023. And before we get going, it is my pleasure to introduce Heather Delansky, who is a student at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, completing her diploma in emergency management. Uh, She did all of the research and all of the hard work for this episode. So Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this topic of rebuild versus retreat, why it interested you, and from your research, what were some of the factors that seemed to influence that decision and how communities could recover? Given that recent Canadian history has been absolutely peppered with news of disasters, many people and even entire communities must navigate that recovery process, which can take several years and always comes with a sizable price tag. The post-disaster recovery process is inherently emotional, stressful, costly, and highly time-sensitive. And decisions that are made quickly need to be well-informed to mitigate future risk and support that build-forward-better mentality. So my goal throughout this project has been to build a greater understanding of the community post-disaster recovery process. Most notably, how the decisions to rebuild are influenced, or alternatively, what shapes or prompts a retreat and how either of those directions could or should be accommodated for an advance. For this project, um, I've been examining the challenges of the recent disaster-affected communities of Merritt, BC for their flood in 2021, and Lytton, BC for their wildfire in 2021, as they navigate the rather subjective process of successful recovery. So as a bit of background, uh, Merritt, BC is a small city of approximately 8,000 people, that sits at the confluence of the Coldwater and the Nicola Rivers. In November 2021, heavy rainfall coming from an atmospheric river event resulted in intense flooding and a rapid evacuation of the entire city. While they are currently in an ongoing and still uncertain rebuilding stage, decisions must be made by residents and government alike to account for their realized flood hazard, as well as recognize if or how that risk is acceptable or manageable. Lytton, BC was a small village of approximately 250 people located in the Fraser Canyon in the southern interior of British Columbia, and it was almost entirely destroyed by a wildfire in June of 2021. This wildfire occurred during a heat dome event, just days after setting multiple record high temperatures. Their rebuilding has been incredibly slow, and despite significant government funding, the decision-making process has limited their progress. And many of those who chose to retreat only did so because it was financially or logistically impossible to stay. Initially, one of my biggest questions was, why do people stay and rebuild in an obviously or potentially hazardous area? And yet, as I journeyed through my quest to answering that, I realized that there really is no single reason or simple answer. Disaster-affected Indigenous communities have deep ties to their land that extend far beyond themselves, and leaving those spaces may not be an option. 
that concept of attachment to place is relevant to all of humanity. And there is a sense of that societal investment that is hard to abandon. Regardless of the motivation, inspiring change or mitigating risk in the interest of public safety is still apt to receive pushback. So any strategy must inform of that risk and outline consequences. Disasters are local, though they inevitably require external support. From the lives and livelihoods that are impacted to the environmental effects that may persist, government, businesses, and communities that have continuity plans fare much better when those plans are locally driven and address their specific values at risk. Well, thank you so much for that amazing summary. And I understand you had the chance to interview a couple of experts. That's right. First up, we have Greg Selecki, who was recently involved in the recovery efforts in Merritt, BC. Well, Greg, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit about your experience helping people with recovery in places like Merritt, BC. Definitely. Thanks a lot, everybody, and thanks for this opportunity. It's always a pleasure to be involved with Epic, and I am a listener, so it's great to be here. When I am asked that question, I really think about my career and what sort of led me to what I do. And uh, believe it or not, I think it's really working with high-performance teams. So in a lot of that stressed, time-constrained environment, I was um, an athlete with Team Canada Volleyball way back in the 80s. And that kind of transpired right into my work with the Calgary, well, Langley Fire Department and then the Calgary Fire Department. And then 9-11 happened. And like a lot of other people, I had all these questions. And that led me more into the disaster response, business continuity, crisis leadership, where I'm in that realm now. But that whole kind of tour for me started really with um, what I like to do. I, I think things that are maybe a little uh, intense and, and, and working with really strong teams. And along the way, after that 9-11 experience when I became, what was I, I guess, a disaster services officer with the Calgary Fire Department. And then growing from there, my fire chief at the time voluntold me to go over into the utilities department in the city of Calgary and get them prepared and ready because I don't know if a lot of people know, but there were also plans to disrupt a lot of the water and wastewater facilities in North America. So there was a lot to do. In any case, I went over to the utilities department, uh, worked there for many, many years, learned a lot about emergency management, a lot about business, and somehow became uh, the water infrastructure lead for Canada, helping create the critical infrastructure framework over those years. And then also part of the Canadian team for international standards like ISO and crisis management, business continuity, and so on. Then we had um, the 2005 floods um, in Calgary, then the 2011 floods in Fires, Slave Lake, Medicine Hat, might be getting my dates wrong, then the 2013 floods, um, then High River. So I've been to about six major disasters in Western Canada, including Merritt, BC, the most recent one. Uh, And after 25 years, semi-retired now as a consultant, uh, certified emergency manager and business continuity professional, I kind of uh, um, was was needed in in Merritt and BC during the floods there when everything was just uh, protracted so much throughout the province and there just weren't enough people to do all the work that had to be done. So it's been um, 
wow, I guess it's been 35 years of me working with high performance teams. And I think that really helps me when I have to go into a corporation or a municipality and build a team. When organizing recovery efforts, what areas do you focus on? And what sort of people do you want on your team? On the recovery side, creating different functions, just like an ICS, where you have communication safety, but the main functions below were critical infrastructure, housing, uh, the people side of it, the finance side of it as well. And uh, especially when we're looking at the people side, it's the mental health and wellness or, or just community health and wellness. So once you're into recovery mode, which is debatable, what's recovery mode anyway, because people are still feeling the effects of the impact of whatever has occurred, specifically if I'm thinking about merit, the floods there, and people are still not in a home, like where are they living and the mental health impacts from that as well. So when I look at all those different sectors and those sections, and I'll speak to Merit really, because I think that was one of the most successful teams uh, and, and projects I ever worked on, I, I looked at the uh, kind of the command staff where crisis communications needed to be in place. Crisis communications is a lot different than just normal corporate communications. So it wasn't that the people in Merit couldn't perform that, but when we look at the continuity of operations just for the normal operations for the city, there just aren't enough resources. Plus, it's a specific skill set. So I was able to bring in a crisis management team or uh, risk and crisis communications team and was able to use the Center for Crisis Risk Communications as they came out and early on, but also were able to do some remote work. The other one on that command staff was uh, a great lead for all that critical infrastructure. So Collier's basically worked with all of the different engineering firms that had to do the pre-work, the assessments, and then, you know, we had to rebuild roads and bridges and so on and so forth. The housing needs, still a big problem, right? And we've heard a lot over the years, you know, what worked and didn't work in Fort Mac and Slave Lake, and how do you get temporary housing? How do you get transitional housing? Um, what's new out there? We were looking at 3D printed houses, you know, how that was going to work out and trailers bringing those in. So a lot of good uh, learnings there. My community health and wellness, um, really important uh, and probably the hardest, I would say, on the staff that have to work in that area because day in, day out, you're hearing about all the terrible stories of people that are displaced and, and what has occurred. So that's a really tough one and takes us a caring and strong individual to lead for sure. One of the key areas for me that I learned over all these years was the finance side. So especially in a municipality, you're going to be asked by a lot of different levels of government, asked by the public, uh, asked by the province, EMBC, Emergency Management, British Columbia, you know, we gave you this money, the federal government gave them, didn't really give them the money, it's always there, but um, all those programs, how do they work? And where did this money go? Not just during the recovery, um, but also in the next couple of years here. So the understanding of that whole process really helped us build back the community in a more timely way. When I think about BC, I think about a fairly robust emergency management system and a well-resourced province. But you mentioned that there simply weren't enough people to do recovery. Could you expand on that? It's pretty rare that a municipality would be resourced enough to even deal with what's going to happen. I mean, we've got, sure, we've got the big ones in, in Canada, the Toronto's, Calgary's, Vancouver's, Edmonton, you know, um, that have their emergency management sections in place or representatives in place. 
But when you look at all the municipalities in Canada, I think about 4,000 of them, uh, in my experience now, they, they just do not know what they're going to be up against. And taking um, that municipality and, and saying, oh, you know, you should be really prepared and, and have a, an emergency management team and a recovery team and a business continuity team. And um, that there's, there's no way, I shouldn't say that, it, it's, it's hard to see anybody being able to have the time to do all the training to a certain uh, extent. And even if you do, that continuity of government, who's going to continue on with everything else that needs to be done on a day-to-day basis in the municipality or even a corporation, that being said, like what is your continuity of all those different positions? So the business continuity needs to be there. And when you look at what happened in BC, how many municipalities were hit by this and to the extent that they were hit and not even the municipalities, when you look at the provincial infrastructure that was just hammered um, how do you have enough people from from evacuees from Merritt and other cities that went throughout the province? So now you have the cities that they're going to standing up their reception centers, um, infrastructure, supply chains. You, there was only one road into Vancouver for a couple months, and that was through the United States. And then you have all the different regions and regional representations, uh, regional offices for EMBC. So staffing up all those people, and even they didn't have the continuity in place to have enough people in place. There aren't enough people in place to go through all the disaster financial assistance programs that are in place, right? It's just that continuity is really tough to maintain. So it's like it's never enough and you have to have a core group and Calgary's pretty lucky a good example of a core group that can manage all of this um when it's needed but that's that's an outlier uh, uh municipality i don't think there are many municipalities at all that are just constantly ready to be there and ready to go and understanding what they're going what they're up against when you have a um, a disaster in their own municipalities Part of recovery seems to be navigating the bureaucracy of funding, standards, laws, and even insurance policies. How do you go about this? The the fact that uh, again in in government uh, we're we're a little more uh, under the microscope of of how those funds are being spent, and you know rightly so. It's it's not a criticism at, at all, but it's a lot of work. And uh, there were times when. Uh, we were still in a pretty, uh, and I, I don't like I don't like delineating, you know, a hard line on response and recovery, and even that kind of showed its head uh, during the merit floods where funding stopped um, in, I'll say January for the debris management cleanup because, oh, you're in recovery. Okay. Uh, fine, let's go to the recovery group and say, okay, we still need uh, to move, you know, hundreds of thousands of tons of debris. And then from the recovery group saying, well, yeah, we don't have any funding. And and it, it gets really frustrating as a uh, responder, whether, again, response to recovery, whatever you want to call it, as a responder in municipalities, when you have to uh, everybody knows it's the right thing to do. Yes, we still need to move all this soil and 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 silt out from all these people's homes. 
it's the right thing to do, but you haven't written a request properly, or you've given it to the wrong department uh, provincially, and it just keeps floating around, floating around, and then you can't give the go-ahead to your contractors and your consultants because you don't have any funding available and it gets really stressful for the team. So navigating through that, and I'd say it's different uh, from my experience between British Columbia and Alberta, and not that either is wrong or right or better. Um, in Alberta, during those responses and the recovery aspects, it was it seemed like the province, the AEMA would say, yeah, here you go. This is the, we'll try and recover this best we can. In in BC, the response publicly at one point was, we don't, ha <clears throat> we don't have a ministry in place to disperse these funds for recovery to municipalities. And even if we did, we don't have a process for it. So oh. we're, yeah. So we're being told that and we're like, where does that leave us? So we really worked hard with the province, British Columbia and EMBC to come up with processes, to come up with financial um, spreadsheets and ways to do this and working with uh, municipal affairs, working with other departments, helping guide what we needed and having them make the decisions. And, you know, it worked out well. Uh, it still worked out well, as frustrating as it may be on both sides or all three sides. Um, we were able to work together to get that done because, you know, the federal government has money available at times. So, of course, the province is going to move first to the critical infrastructure provincially because, you know, sure, there's merit, but there's 10 other municipalities that are feeling the same thing that are arguably, well, they are more populated or more infrastructure Plus, you're getting, you're choking one of the largest cities in Canada with no road routes. So that's their focus. And here's Merritt still going, oh, we need this too. So working together with them on that and trying to really find those financial ties. Back to my financial lead, who was integral in coming up with a lot of these um, new ways to do recovery business within the province of British Columbia and what was created in merit on the financial side was shared with a lot of other municipalities in BC so that when the funding was available to be uh, sent out to the municipalities, um, we were there, you know, and we were there first probably um, and the other municipalities were following as we went along. Beyond funding, what other laws or processes did you encounter? as either barriers or boosts to recovery? Yeah, well, there were a lot. And one good example is back to the housing one, and I'll speak to that almost the funding side of it and some of the laws slash bylaws that are in place and the person that was the lead, yeah, they were looking at, and we even had to, and it's still called at this point, transitional housing. And there's a reason for that. And it's because of government funding. So we looked at uh, 3D houses being built. We looked at the oil and gas camps coming in. We looked at uh, um, even stick build houses, smaller homes. You know, we looked at all of that. Canada Task Force helping us out. But one of the things we learned, people want to return to their own type of living. So yeah. someone lives in an apartment, they don't want to be living in a house. Someone lives in a mobile home park, they don't want to be living in a uh, an apartment. So 
when you look at the different types of housing that was lost, we wanted to replace it as closely to the same uh, as possible. And uh, I think we had about almost 500 homes that were lost or unlivable at that time, which is a big number when you're looking at a small city, a smaller city. So one of the ideas that came up with uh, had, we're ready to sign a, a lease for an oil and gas camp at, I mean, I'll throw the numbers out there. I think it was around $2 million. And the, the group we had been working with had even said, you know what, oil prices are going up. You can probably sell this at a profit. We'll help you when you're done, move it out. And you'll probably get a few hundred thousand dollars after you're done. We couldn't find an entity willing to take on that cost for the people and make money on it because there's no policy in any provincial, municipal, NGO that says we will purchase something of that magnitude to use. Even though as excellent as some of the NGOs are, uh, and, and maybe they're spending $3 million a month on people that are being displaced, this was going to save a million dollars a month. And nope, we don't have a policy in place to do that. So we're not going to do it. We're just going to you know, lose that extra million a month. So you have things like that in place. Uh, one area that we were able to get some traction, though, was the municipal side. So something as small as looking at how people could live on their own land while they're repairing their homes how do they do that? They set up tents, they bring in RVs. Well, <clears throat> okay, great. Yeah, let's get them to bring in RVs. And we made deals with, with RV companies to allow people to bring them in. And some people can't afford it. So thankfully, you have the Red Cross supplementing people that can't afford it to bring the RVs in. Well, now bylaws saying, and people are complaining, well, you can't put RVs out there. There's like a two-week maximum or whatever the amount was. So you need a turnaround right away. And this is why it's so important to have that policy group in place, council, but to say, look, we need to uh, have this bylaw amended for the next year so that people can leave their RVs sitting out front or on their property. Okay, great, thumbs up right away. So there was no waiting, there was no going to a couple readings. It was, yep, agreed, agreed upon, which is also why keeping your state or local emergency in place is so important and so effective so that you can make these decisions and you have that to fall back on, totally realizing that after that's lifted, you're going to still have to deal with, again, the financial questions, some of the decisions that were made on and on and on. But uh, it's important to keep that soul in place so that you can make these decisions occur much more quickly. In your experience, what sort of pre-existing conditions might lead to a successful municipal recovery? Yeah, I touched on it a little bit already, and it's having a continuity of governance plan. And I know that was something after the 2005 floods in Calgary that was realized. And I can't remember now if it was 05 or 13. It might have been 05 where we um, had to move a lot of the different functions within City Hall that were occurring there. And City Hall, of course, housing a lot of the different well, almost all, in some cases, all of the different departments and a lot of the 
community functions, people would still come to city hall to do, to pay taxes, whatever it may be. And when you have no access to your city hall, which is also where you have council chambers, what's your backup? Because you still have to have your council meetings, right? You still need that continuity of government governance in place. So business continuity planning. And I know we've uh, seen in a lot of different readings, best practices, after action reports that municipalities uh, will usually lose up to 50% of their leadership within 18 months of a disaster response, something of this magnitude. And I've seen it happen in every uh, disaster I've been to. So six of the disasters, municipal disasters I've been to, that has occurred. And for whatever reason, not that people are getting fired or anything like that, but there's an emotional toll taken, right? And there's another graphic that I use constantly when I go into municipalities um, and it looks at, you know, the honeymoon periods, we're all helping each other and then it comes back down. And it's not just the community itself. It's the responders that are are there and that are in place and that have had to live through this. So whether they, you know, don't want to be in a big city, they want to go to a smaller city or a calmer city, or they've been poached as this has been going on, or it's, I might as well retire now on a good note, right? We did a great job there. People move along within that time period. So there's even that awareness and preparation. And unfortunately, with merit, 70% of the leadership was gone within six months of the event. So back to that whole continuity and understanding, you know, who's keeping the lights on at the rec center, you know, <laughs> is really important. Greg, thanks so much for your time and everything you do. Thanks, you guys. Well, great work with that interview. As always, it is so interesting to hear about those boots on the ground recovery stories and to start to understand some of the hurdles that you might expect to encounter when doing things like applying for funding. Who else did you get a chance to speak with? Well, next up, I got the chance to speak with Sophie Gilbo from the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction about her experience advising on the recovery efforts on multiple disasters, including the recent Flint wildfires. Hi, I'm Sophie Gilbo. I am the Director of Partnerships with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, also known as ICLR. Uh, we are a multidisciplinary disaster risk reduction institute, uh, non-for-profit. We're affiliated with Western University and also financially supported by the Canadian property and casualty insurance industry. Personally, I'm an architect by training, and then I specialized my study and I added a master's degree in disaster and emergency management. Well, looking at past Canadian disasters, what general factors influence how resilient a community is and how fast and how well they can recover? That's a really good question. Um, I think how communities recover is very influenced by uh, disaster management, how strong the disaster management process is. And I think in Canada, and I, you know, I'm pretty sure it's the same in many countries, but we have a very strong focus on response when it comes to emergency management. And we invest much less uh, time and resources into the three other phases, uh, mitigation preparedness, which, and recovery, which, uh, you know, when we go into a recovery situation after, it makes us much less ready to uh, respond in a way that uh, is resilient and that will influence build back better. So uh, what will influence to answer your question, how a community, how resilient a community is, um, I think one of the first thing, and that ties back with the 
uh, with Sendai is to make time to understand your risk. I think if a community doesn't understand clearly what its vulnerabilities are, whether it's to public infrastructure, to housing or other elements, then it's much harder to plan how you want to adapt and how you want to recover. Um, another thing would be uh, having both the political will and financial resources, and that can come from the community itself or that can come from other sources. But without those things, without the political will to say to take a break and say this is we're not going to recover the same way that we were before because visibly that didn't work for us, um, and uh, we're going to invest in doing things differently. Uh, finding these resources, finding the right partnership, I think third point is very important too, because communities vary in size, they vary in capacities. And if you uh, don't find the right people, whether it's internally or externally to identify, okay, not only are those vulnerabilities, those are your vulnerabilities, but uh, those are the type of actions that you can take to rebuild in a better way. Uh, you're not going to be able to uh, be successful. So I think we've noticed through 10 years of researching what communities do to be successful from an adaptation perspective, those are things that keep coming coming back uh, from all the case studies that we've looked at. During recovery, what sort of things might influence decision-making around where or when to rebuild? So I think the, the main thing that we've been looking at, again, at ICLR is around pre-disaster recovery planning. We recently, a couple of years ago, started a program that's called Resilience and Recovery. And we find that you know, once your community is faced uh, with an event, with a very like severe weather event, it leads to bad consequences for the community. First of all, these events are an opportunity. You know, as devastating as they are, as traumatic as they are, we often see communities that are successful using these events, using the time period right after those events as a way to, to say, hey, let's, you know, let's see how we could do things differently so this doesn't happen again. And, you know, I think a, an important element to help these communities is to have this element of pre-disaster recovery planning. So once you understand, you know, what's at stake, um, you know, of course, if you're in Alberta, for example, in Calgary, you might have a higher risk of being affected by a health storm, uh, not the same risk in other places in Canada. But so pre-disaster recovery planning is a big thing, knowing what are your risks, what you can do to address them ahead of time is super important. Access to funding, I've mentioned, I mentioned it before, but there are some adaptation measures that come at a cost and others that are much more inexpensive. So for instance, if you're looking at rebuilding following a wildfire, uh, you know, including a fire resilient roof on your house will not cost you much more money. But if you're looking at changing, for example, your vinyl siding on your house to masonry or hardy board, then that's for a homeowner, for example, that would be a little bit more expensive. Uh, similarly, at the community level, there are public infrastructure investments that require more money, you know, if you're building a dam or other things, you know, or just adapting your current public infrastructure to make it more resilient, you need funds to do that. I mean, I would argue that these funds will be very well invested because you won't have to repair them in the future. You won't have to make the same investment into rehabilitating them in a, in a, short, uh, in a short time period. But you do need access to funding. Political will is so important. We found that many, many communities had local champions, local leaders that really took it upon themselves, worked across departments, you know, really rallied the whole community around their initiatives. And so to have not only this political will, but the willingness to, you know, find the right partners 
at the table, who they are within the community. Often a lot of these projects of these big adaptation initiatives involve more than one department. So to, to be able to build those bridges. Um, one of the things, you know, I mentioned earlier at ICLR, a lot of our funding comes from the insurance industry. Uh, when we want to work at the homeowners level, there's many more and more companies that offer programs, whether they give you an amount of money to the homeowner to increase their resilience out of, you know, a certain set of measures, or they offer to pay for some upgrades that, you know, will make the house above a building code standard that will make it more resilient. Um, just a side note on that, we know that historically building codes were designed to uh, protect the safety of the person inside the house, but we are starting to see a shift in Canada, both from the insurance industry and, you know, governing bodies in terms of uh, regulations of buildings to look at increasing resilience to reduce losses in the future. And I think the last thing, which is Probably one of the most important um, is to uh, get community buy-in. You know, we've been working um, with the village of Lytton recently to uh, help them um, prepare a bylaw that would help uh, them put them their buildings back in a more resilient way. And I think it's really hard to, and even for me, to, to buy into something that I don't understand why I'm doing this, then what's the point, right? And I think when a homeowner just faced a very traumatic event. You, We often see people want to go back to their house, to what they lost, to the way they lived before. Um, and that is often realistic with you know some changes that will, of course, maybe affect a little bit the way your house looks like. Uh, it will affect maybe what you can plant around your house, where you can plant it and things like that. It is a change, but I think if you understand, if you explain the science behind these measures, if you explain why um, and how much, you know, how their risk will be reduced, you're much more likely to implement successful initiatives that will, you know, get the community to be involved in those measures in the long run, to not just like adopt it and then let it go, right? So I think community buy-in, very, very, very important. Um, do you have any success stories? We do have, you know, many success stories. Uh, I think... Um, you know, we I mentioned we've been working with communities, but our whole series of cities of that book, there's we have 100 case studies right now. Uh, many of them we realize are after severe weather events. So uh, a lot of those are success stories. One in particular, maybe that I can share. Uh, we've worked with the, the city of Calgary after the hailstorm. I believe it was in 2020. Um, you know, so we've collaborated with them after we know the measures to reduce damage from hell. We know them. We have years of research to back them up. And if you uh, build um, a hell resistant roof, you know, much of the damage is on roof, often on cars as well. But if we're looking specifically at the house level, you can invest in a specific type of shingle that is a hell resistant. And so we work with insurance companies, but also with the cities. Uh, we help to build uh, public awareness of the risk of loss and damage and what are some of the protection best practices around roofing. Uh, the city itself decided to implement a $3,000 rebate program for homeowners. And they did that very quickly after the event, which, you know, was the perfect timing uh, to install impact resilient uh, roofs. And beyond that, and I think that's like a big part of this success story is that the city partnered with us and others to develop, um, you know, to uh, go to the building code and try to make changes for the future so that new homes that are built are built with these stronger roofs, that new homes that are built in Calgary and the new developments, that they have these resilience measure included in them. 
So I think this is like a three-part success, in my opinion. Not only they, they look at the event, they look at what happened and said, well, we don't want this type of damage to happen again. Uh, we, uh, I still spoke with insurance companies and informed them of, of what was happening, but there was so much demand. I think there's over 1,600 homeowners that were provided with rebates. Um, and then there's even more that applied, but at some point the city funding ran out. So I think that just goes to show how successful the program is. It goes to show that the awareness was raised as well, that people are aware that this is a very easy way uh, to replace their roofs. Maybe when they have to replace it themselves in the future, even if they were not affected by the storm, maybe they'll go ahead and you know request this type of roofing. So I think in terms of awareness and in terms of impact, this would have been a very successful uh, Build Back Better case study. So in your opinion, though, is there is there a time where retreat might be a better option? I think it is. Uh, if you look specifically at some, you know, cases of coastal flooding, for example, um, it's very difficult. You know, it's it's a difficult question. Um, you know, there's many ways you can look at risk. Risk avoidance would be the, you know, from a purely logical way, it's, it's the best thing to do to reduce your risk, avoid the risk. So if you're located in the floodplain, you know, that flood is going to come back, then, you know, of course, it is very difficult to break communities. It is very difficult to move people. We have seen some cases in Canada where that happened. I believe in the community of Sydney, Nova Scotia, there's about 17 homeowners whose properties were deemed uninhabitable after a, a big uh, flood. And uh, the homes were assessed at their pre-flood fair market value and the money was given to the homeowners. But for these programs to be successful, you know, it's it's very, if, if you don't make these programs mandatory, I think it's difficult because you'll have some people do it, some people not do it. And so you're, you're not really fully avoiding that risk, right? But if you're able to secure a fair price for people uh, and for them to relocate to, you know, lower risk area when possible, I believe that remains an excellent option. Uh, if you can turn high-risk areas into parks or other things that can be enjoyed by the community, even better. But there's also, you know, to your question, there's also many situations in Canada that most communities are facing some sort of risk, right? If you think about it, whether it's urban flooding, whether it's wildfire, whether it's extreme wind, uh, you know, I could name very few communities that would say you're low risk to all these things. But but the science around adaptation, what we can do to buildings, I think we know so much more than we knew before. And so, of course, you know, retreat, excellent option when possible. And sometimes I believe it, it is the only option. Um, but in other circumstances, there's so many things that can be done and both at the home level for new home, for existing homes and for communities at the broader scale as well, right? So I think often adaptation is not solely the responsibility of a homeowner. It's not only the responsibility of the local government or the province or the federal. It's really a shared uh, opportunity, I would say, as opposed to responsibility. Um, we know so much. Uh, of course, if you can avoid it, avoid it altogether, do it. But in many cases, you know, what are the adaptation measures out there? There are many. So I think knowing what those are, knowing what your risks are, always a uh, key to moving forward like it's it's really hard i imagine to come up with like when you're talking about the pre-market value 
you know, do people get the value for their homes? And then, you know, you know, we all know what the yeah. housing market is right now as well. How do you, how do you, of course, no. And that's somewhere else. a difficult thing to do. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes insurance companies will offer a buyout after an event uh, under, you know, depending on your coverage, depending on your policy. Um, I think this is often offered. Um it's it's very difficult. And I think also, you know, if a community partially is removed, then there's other questions that come with, do you have sufficient resources to keep this community viable? You know, do you have enough grocery stores, schools, et cetera? Like, I think it's it's like a such a complicated question. Um, I think when possible, when it's done properly, retreat is absolutely a good option. But there's many other communities where that is not necessarily the only option and other things can can be done. Um, I think maybe I can share some some examples uh, outside of rebuild of, or retreat, but just some examples that we've recently learned about um, in terms of communities that that really invested in how they how they understood their risk. Because I, I think that's a question that comes back pretty frequently. Um, you know, communities don't know where to start. Uh, people don't know where to start in terms of reducing their risk, and so. Um, I'll just give you an example. One of the, one of the recent report that we published uh, last December was about uh, communities that uh, implemented strong initiatives around climate resilient infrastructure. Um, one of the cities, excuse me, city of Laval in, in Quebec, just uh, north of Montreal, um, were uh, invited to participate in this protocol, the uh, PIVC protocol, Public Infrastructure Engineering Vulnerability Committee. Um, and so they learned to, uh, you know, they had this major overflow structure that was, you know, causing many issues on their territory. So they did this assessment, which really uh, allowed them to work with people across departments to understand, you know, what are the vulnerabilities and what are the climate risk, you know, from like both the flooding, a heat perspective, uh, what can go wrong in the future and how can we envision you know, making the changes to this infrastructure so we stop, you know, facing the impact of our changing climate and how we can adjust that in the future. So that this is this this study, this they try to understand the risks as much as they could, and they did that. And once they were done, there was really no uh, budget at the time to do the the changes that that they wanted to do. But so they but they did have this report. They did have this report. They did have this study that showed exactly what needed to be done. And so. When I think it's like a couple of years after the fact, there's this specific program that came up and they were like, we fund communities who want to invest in climate resilient infrastructure. You need to back up your claims with reports and studies. And so they were ready to go. And right away, just like that, because they had made the time to, you know, look at their risk, uh, look at what um, they were going to do. The funding came very easily and they were able to move forward with some of the recommendations. But had they not take the time to to understand that in the past, then there's very low likelihood that these investments would have been possible. And so I think the main message from you know most of these questions is be ready, be prepared and plan. And once you have that in your back pocket, you never know what opportunities are going to come but you're going to know what to ask for. Um, we had another community in the Northwest Territories, the town of Norman Wells. Um, they were being impacted by increased erosion on the riverbank, which was threatening the stability of some local roads and other infrastructure. So they were very concerned with the situation. 
So they looked at various programs again that were possible and they worked with uh, Climate Change in the North program from the Crown Indigenous Relations and Northern Affairs Canada. And they were able to hire external consultants that they conduct this whole geotechnical investigation of the riverbank. And once again, once they had this data, uh, they were able to, you know, um, explain to the town's council uh, what needs to be done. And eventually they supported the development and implementation of a comprehensive drainage plan to reduce erosion and, and flooding risk in the community. So we have so many of these case studies, which tells me that, you know, most communities in Canada are faced with some risk. Um, but when you know what to do, you know, all the other steps, you know, that first step of understanding risk is is crucial, in my opinion. That's probably the most crucial of all, because then everything can flow more naturally once that is done. Recovery is often perceived in Canada as, you know, where are we house where are we going to house people temporarily? Uh, you know, when can we get the contractors back in as quickly as possible? It's often evaluated uh, around speed. How quickly can we put people back? Uh, how fast are we going to move these? Are we going to move back these people that were displaced? But we sometimes, you know, don't pause enough to look at, you know, how are we going to do this? You know, how can we avoid uh, for them to be displaced once again? And I think that's that's a question that is being asked a bit more, but there's still a lot of work to do. And to your point, I think this goes back to reviewing how we view emergency management altogether, right? Yeah. Uh, I know I went to school similar as you for emergency <laughs> management, and I, I was told at the time, you know, there are four parts. They are all important. You know, you got to focus on preparedness. You got to focus on mitigation. You got to focus on recovery and, and, and response, obviously. But uh, but then if you get into the field, then, you know, I, I haven't worked as an emergency manager, but I've worked with many uh, many of my former classmates are in this field as well. And you can see, I think when you ask people, um, you know, what's the biggest part of your job, you know, most of it is associated to response and what come and recovery. But uh, because there's not as much time and resources invested into preparedness and mitigation, um, then, you know, I think it kind of creates that imbalance as well, right? Where you have to respond more and recover more because you, you can't, optimize the recovery um you know like you said with laval right they did the work in advance they had the people to put together the plan whereas a lot of these smaller communities they don't have those um those uh, resources to to actually execute that kind of planning that aligns them for, with that, the funding so that's also to your point uh, where it's important to know of all the programs out there for example there's a federation of Canadian municipalities that has many programs around you know infrastructure funds uh green funds all these things i believe icli canada have some had some programs as well many many federal programs as well when we speak with communities very rarely do we see communities that have secure the funding all by themselves unless they are very large communities. Smaller communities or medium-sized communities, most of the time, I would say, require partners, uh, whether it's to um, understand risk, whether it's to, you know, have the right tools to do certain things, um, but, uh, or, or for funding. So I think, uh, you know, knowing what's available out there in terms of programs is also very important. Uh, and for homeowners, speak with your insurers. I think, you know, one of the things we saw in Lytton is that many people were uninsured, uh, unfortunately. And I think that complicated the recovery quite a bit. Or whether they were uninsured or underinsured, 
Um, and I think that's the homeowner's responsibility to understand your insurance coverage, uh, to call your insurers uh, or your insurance brokerage and say, um, you know, for example, flood coverage is very complicated in Canada. You can be covered for a certain type of flood, but not all types of floods. So depending how the money, how the water gets into your house, uh, you may have coverage if it's sewer backup, for example, but you may not have coverage if the river rays and the water flew into your basement. So yeah. understanding what's covered, you know, how much are you covered for? Uh, you know, are you covered if you need to relocate while they rebuild your house? Are you covered like what's your deductible and all these things and ask your insurance companies and many of them again have programs to help you rebuild in a way that will make your house safer. Can you can you speak at all to your um, involvement in Lytton's recovery? Yes so um, I can speak about it for sure. Uh, We collaborated with the village of Lytton for the last I want to say 18 months. we uh, worked with council. We were approached by the former council initially to uh, go in and make recommendations as to how uh, the risk for the community could be reduced for wildfire. Uh, as you're aware, most of the community got burned down. Uh, and so we, um, one of the things we suggested to the village was to have a building bylaw that would make uh, constructions more resilient to wildfire. You cannot have a fully zero risk but you can significantly reduce this risk to uh, make sure that buildings perform better and that firefighters have more time to control the fire if a fire was to ignite uh, in Lytton. So the Wildland Urban Interface Fire Guide, uh, it's a guide pretty much to um, that really uh, made recommendations on how communities should build in the Wildland Urban Interface to reduce their risk of being affected by wildfire. So the recommendations touch on Uh, what type of materials you can use, how you can have non-combustible roofing, for example, non-combustible sidings. Uh, It talks about structure ignition zones. So what can you have, for example, five feet next to your house, which is pretty much a non-combustible zone. Uh, What can you have in that next, you know, area, the, you know, after that, what type of plants you can have Uh, and also what type of maintenance you expect to do, you know, more your lawn, trim your trees, make sure you don't have uh, conifer needles around the property. So all these things are covered in the Wui Fire Guide. And so we translated that into a bylaw, did a lot of engagement with council uh, and and with the community to explain, you know, what how these measures are going to reduce your risk. We also uh, supported the community uh, to develop um a community wildfire protection plan with a local uh, forester to really look not only at what we can do at the building level, but also at the community level, what could be done. And so uh, as of now, uh, the bylaw was adopted as of October. I believe council is looking at some potential changes they could make to it to make it more um, applicable in the community. But the community has taken these recommendations seriously. As I mentioned, I think it was crucial to take the time to explain some of the changes that were brought by the bylaw do change the way people live. For example, you know, uh, where you can put a propane tank on your lot so it doesn't create a risk for um, firefighter safety if there's ever a fire for explosion. Um, you know, there's there's certain things like that that do change the way people were living. So it required, you know, some discussions. But uh, but so far, I would say from the building level, 
uh, it looks like uh, there is strong buy-in to implement some of these measures, such as you know, non-combustible siding, non-combustible roofing, uh, non-combustible decks, um, you know, the type of fencing that you use, all these things. So we are hopefully, you know, Lytton will be rebuilt in a much more resilient way. I think that's a big win. Uh, and hopefully more communities in the wildland urban interface look at these regulations and adopt them. And so Lytton is also, I believe, looking outside of the risk reduction, they're looking to build a more energy efficient community at the same time. So I think lots of uh, good decisions being made there. And you said that there was good buy-in um, at the local level as well? Like any project like this, it takes a lot of engagement sessions. Uh, you know, some of the things we, we did in Lytton, we did a cost-benefit analysis to show that, for example, for the average house in Lytton, these added measures would be about $5,000 on the overall construction cost. And we costed that with uh, prices at the, the closest Home Depot. And so uh, making sure that most materials were available. But we also estimate that the benefits in terms of future awarded loss were 10 to 20 times greater than that investment, right? So, um, but it's important, you know, I work in this field. I've been working in this field for many years, but if it was my house, I would love to know why I am investing this money. Because as I mentioned, many houses were uninsured. And so some insurance company will cover the cost. There's also federal funding that came in. Um, so some of this will be allocated towards that, but still, I think it's important when you do changes like that, when you do suggest changes, um, Lytton was a community that, you know, as I mentioned, many people came at the table after the event, many people, you know, had ideas on how this community should be rebuilt. Is it going to be a net zero community? Is it going to be a like the most wildfire resilient community? Is it going to be the most accessible communities? Because we know we have uh, an, an older population that, so do we want to make it the best communities to age in place, age in your house? So to make these decisions, you have, you know, a lot of people at the table and I'm just putting myself, you know, in the skin of like residents of Lytton that you were there, you lost your house, you're eager to go back in. Uh, Lytton has a very complex uh, debris cleanup process. We are on, uh, you know, indigenous land that required a very specific debris cleanup uh, process with, you know, a lot of archaeological uh, presence and a lot of artifacts that were found through the cleanup. So I think, you know, that delayed things considerably. So you have people that are very eager to return to their house, to have their house rebuilt. So, of course, when you tell them, hey, you should really, you know, pause and, and look at these things and how you're going to rebuild, it can be frustrating, right? It can be a lot to hear. Um, you've just been through a big trauma. But I think making the time to bring the right people at the table, uh, whether it's Fire Smart BC, uh, foresters, uh, some researchers at ICLR, to really explain, you know, what you're getting out of it uh, for that $5,000. And, you know, that might be a bit more, a bit less for certain homes is important and to make sure that you understand the local conditions in Lytton, right? For example, there's there's quite a there's some lots that have big slopes or there's narrower lots. So sometimes it's not always possible to follow some of the recommendations. So how can we work with that bylaw to make sure that we don't increase risk not only for the homeowners but for their neighbors as well, right? So what how what can we do specifically in Lytton to make sure that you know we do the best we can with the local condition, right? So yeah, it took a, a lot of, of discussions, a lot of explanation, and, and it's important to answer people's questions because you uh, want them to know why, you want them to 
continue to think this is an important thing over time, especially with wildfire. It's not a one-time thing, right? It requires a lot of maintenance. Uh, you have to look at your trees. You have to look at what's on your lot. Anything that can be combustible, you have to be particularly careful during wildfire season. You know, it is, it's been said before, it's the hottest place in Canada. On the day of the fire, it reached above 40 degree weather, right? It's a temperature. It's very, very hot. It was very, very dry. So how do you work within these conditions? So uh, we're very proud of the collaboration with Litton, hoping this keeps to go uh, in the right direction. And um, I guess we can talk about it again, maybe in a, in a couple months, once the, <laughs> the yeah. starts. Excellent work on that. It is always amazing to hear Sophie talk. Uh, she's just so incredibly smart and has that longer term vision for what a resilient community looks like. I really like this idea of building forward better. I think I've been guilty of saying build back better. So I'm going to change that uh, as my emergency preparedness week resolution. I'm wondering if you can take us away with any of your final thoughts and comments for this, uh, this amazing project that you did. Well, the beauty of emergency management is that there is always something to learn and someone to learn from. We will get better as lessons identified become lessons learned, shared and funded. And while every situation may present different challenges, gaining that understanding of the drivers, systems and structures will help build that big picture. Heather, thank you for all your work on this project. A big thanks to Greg Selecki and Sophie Gilbo for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of recovery. And that is all for this episode of Epic Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and happy Emergency Preparedness Week.